This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler. This is episode 250, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. Later in the program, some reflections on this milestone episode, where we started, where we are, some self-analysis, and some self-criticism. But first, the white pine, so important to the Newfoundland identity that they're referenced in the first line of the Ode to Newfoundland, when sun rays crown thy pine-clad hills. But that was then when Daniel Benoob went canoeing in the Upper Humber watershed north of Cormac, there was hardly one in sight. As Daniel explains in a recent article in the independent online news site, the white pine was the victim of a voracious cutting frenzy in the early 1900s. Whole swaths of the province clear-cut, only stumps remaining, sawdust defiling streams, brooks, and lakes. By the time Newfoundland joined Confederation, white pine were few and far between. These days, the white pine is so scarce on the island that there's a ban on cutting them. The white pine is just another victim of the province's cavalier approach to our natural world. Destroy it forever for a temporary resource boom. And the cycle continues. Today, Newfoundland and Labrador as the worst record in the country for wilderness protection. Writer and educator Daniel Benoob is our guest this week on Mi'kmaq Matters. Daniel, thanks for being on the program. Um, first of all, tell us about the trip. Uh, where, uh, what was your route, uh, first of all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was actually my first canoe trip. So it was really uh, a really memorable experience. Um, we put in a Deadwater Bay, which is a, a small tributary that feeds into Aedes Lake. So we did it. It was kind of late spring. It was before the summer solstice, I remember. And the water levels were quite low. So that first few hours, we were kind of getting out of the boat and dragging it for, fair, you know, fair ways. Um, so after you cross Aedes Lake, you enter Aedes River, which eventually meets up with the, the Upper Humber. Uh, so it was about, uh, I think it was about 50 to 60 kilometers. Um, and then you get out nearby, near the Sir Richard Squires Provincial Park, which is kind of just north of Cormac. So you're you're on the land for, for several days. And um, mm-hmm. as you uh, say at one point in the article, you're... Um, you've been traveling for some time and you're looking around and you see a cut block, uh, this square um, of, uh, of brown in a, um, in a sea of green. Uh, tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, geez, it was probably, we put out, like we set off pretty early in the morning. So this is, I think, I think as we were crossing 80s Lake, uh, so, you know, probably had been paddling for five, six hours at this point. It feels like you're pretty far out into the wilderness, like away from away from it all, as it were. 
um, and you kind of come around this little bend, and then yeah, like I said, you can just see this this huge cut block. It's just a, it was yeah, it's kind of shocking. And like I we were chatting earlier, and it's uh, I'm not surprised, but it still kind of takes you out of the experience. It changes the yeah, just kind of changes your mindset to realize like how profound the the changes yes in the land have been. The phrase you use for it is uh, is a vibe killer, and um, <laughs> I think people who've been out in the woods and have had similar experiences can can relate to that. Um, the uh, the feeling uh, that you have the the high, the euphoria, and then um, you crash. Uh, was that what it was like for you? Uh, kind of uh, a spiritual sink uh, mm -hmm. on the trip. Yeah, and it, it's incredible because. At the time, you know, I was going, I had recently broken up with a partner. So I was kind of going through some personal turmoil. And it's like, you just completely forget it all. Like you're just out there. It's so beautiful. There's so, so much wildlife. Um, like I, like I write in the article, like so many, so much, so many birds and caribou and moose. It's just, uh, it kind of, yeah, puts you in a, a very different headspace. Um, mm. But of course, then you see kind of the in, impact the settlers have and, it and it, it, sh it shakes it all up in a way. Yes. Now you're you're uh, scanning the horizon there as you're uh, as you're on your trip. You're seeing the long range mountains, and you're seeing a lot mm -hmm. of uh, leaving aside the cut block for for a moment. You're seeing a lot of green, um, but how much of that green is um, is uh, the way things were originally, and how much is mm -hmm. that uh, the result of human intervention? What you're what you're mm -hmm. seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's incredible to think about that. It it has like in that area would have been predominantly pine, or at least a very large portion pine. And now you see it's spruce and fir, and you know the odd the odd birch in areas. And it was just incredible to to think that it was so profoundly transformed by you know buck saws and axes. It's uh, yeah, it's it's an incompre incomprehensible amount of human labor. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah to to totally transform that area mm -hmm. now let's talk about the uh the white pine uh you're uh, in your article in the independent um you um you make reference to the um to the ode uh, to newfoundland the national anthem uh the first line of which uh is when sun rays crown thy pine clad hills so um Obviously, in Newfoundland uh, heritage, the white pine is uh, is significant, and mm -hmm. um, but you, the interesting um, one of the interesting things in your article is the history of uh, the white pine and how the white pine, in a very short period of time, uh, were almost wiped out in the province. Uh, First, the, the cutting saws um, hit Nova Scotia, got everything uh, they could there. And even though our white pine were smaller and less val valuable because the rest of the, uh, the continent had been cut, um, they headed to, to Newfoundland. It all happened in, a, in about a 20-year period. Uh, just to give us a, a short history of uh, what happened mm -hmm. to the white pine. Yeah, and this is a very kind of common story. Um, similar a similar kind of process happened with lobster in newfoundland where it's uh and this is of course is also a global story of kind of the expansion of 
capitalist extraction, it'll often, one of the ways it expands is by moving to new territory. So it'll go to one place, kind of use out the resources as fast as possible, and then realize like, uh-oh, we're running out. So then find a new area. So that was like with the white pine, yeah, it was very wasteful, extremely wasteful practices. People would be just kind of clear cutting, taking only the most the most valuable pine, leaving the rest. Um, this was happening in Nova Scotia. It moves over to Newfoundland. The same practices are happening. They're kind of just dumping the sawdust directly into the river, which is having all sorts of negative effects, uh, environmental effects. And yeah, within a few short decades, uh, they basically yeah take out all the most valuable ones, waste all the smaller ones, and and we're left with a very different looking forest. Yes, and um, and what is it about the uh, the white pine that makes it valuable? It's um, the wood is uh, is good for uh, it's functional. Uh, uh, for mm -hmm. for furniture windows that sort of thing that's why it's so it's so valuable mm -hmm. yeah and not to mention kind of beautiful this is actually where i first heard the story i have a friend um uh who had a place he has a place downtown he, well, he's uh, the father of a friend of mine um their house i think was maybe it was built is right downtown as an old house and the original four floors are, are Newfoundland white pine. And it is just like they're gorgeous. He's also a carpenter. So he's been able to repair them to a high degree, but um, yeah, it's like a beautiful wood. It was really uh, often tall and straight. So it, it made it really functional for all sorts of purposes, indoor and exterior, including framing and shipbuilding. Uh, so it was, it was a yeah, highly desirable kind of global commodity. You're listening to Big Mom Matters. Our guest this week is Daniel Banub, telling us about those pine-clad hills that are no more, yet another victim of the province's chronic boom-and-bust mentality. This, uh, I guess in the history of the province, like there's been a few, I guess there's a few resource booms that are, are less familiar in kind of the historical narrative. Of course, everyone's familiar with cod and with iron ore, but um, like in the 19th century, for a time, uh, Newfoundland was one of the leading copper producers in the world. It was only, you know, a decade or something like that. But it's uh, these the same kind of problems. Bo the boom and bust cycle has, has happened quite a bit here. So. Yes, the frenzies, uh, the frenzies continue. Uh, different, to, uh, different to resort. Day. Yes, yeah. to this day. Yeah. Well, um, uh, according to uh, what I uh, what I saw in my research, the the white pine can live to um, uh, 450 years old. Um, so um, there may be uh, white pine out there. If you can hear us, white pine, we're we're thinking of you and uh, <laughs> and hope uh, hope that you're safe uh, through all the uh, the mining and um, and all the other stuff going on on the island right now. And there is a there is a ban on uh, on cutting white pine in Newfoundland at the moment, and there has been mm -hmm. for a few years. But I guess it's a bit late. Uh, the train has left the station. Yeah, and apparently there are. Um, I was chatting with my my partner's grandfather, who used to work for NL Hydro. There are some protected areas, like I think there are pockets around where you can kind of experience what it would have looked like, but they're yeah, few and far between. And it's a little a little too late. <laughs> yes. 
Well, Daniel, uh, great to talk to you. And thank you for that uh, wonderful piece in The Independent. Thank you. It was my pleasure. We were speaking with Daniel Banoob, author of In Search of Lost Pine, which you can find on theindependent.ca. Now, before we say goodbye, some thoughts and reflections. Episode 1 of Mi'kmaq Matters aired back in December 2016, and here we are at number 250. Along the way, we've also hosted public panel discussions and election debates all the time, giving you information and insight you don't get anywhere else. I know we have lots of fans and supporters out there, and we thank you. But we also know that not everyone has such warm regard for us. There are those who feel we fan the flames of controversy just to get Facebook views, engage in personal attacks, or lateral violence as some have called it. In response to that, let us acknowledge that Mi'kmaq Matters operates within a journalistic model. Sometimes there's a gotcha quality to that style, and it can be unpleasant if you're on the other side of it. But consider this. While we operate in the settler journalistic model, many of the groups and individuals we cover operate within a colonial model. I'm thinking here of Indian Act governments like Halibu and Miobigig. Those current ban regimes are very close to the Liberals and spend millions and millions of government dollars, hopefully in the best interests of ban members. Those Indian Act bans and chiefs deserve to be asked the tough questions and to be accountable. You, the members, are entitled to nothing else. As for chiefs of the community bans and their financial helpers, they are more and more tapping into revenue streams from those same colonial governments. Often, the transparency does not match the tens of thousands of dollars in funding. Now, on the other end, elders and spiritual leaders are entitled to different treatment as are members of our community doing cultural work. Respect and gratitude are what's appropriate there. At the end of the day, we are all Ilnu. Here at Mi'kmaq Matters, we try to get the facts and the tone right. I like to think that most of the time we do, but there are occasions we do not. So, we acknowledge our shortcomings and try to do the best we can. Thanks for everything these past six and a half years, for the news tips, financial support, and for your eyes and ears. A special shout out to the Mi'kmaq Matters team. Producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Janes, and researcher Hilary McGuess. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And introducing our new website, Mi'kmaqMatters.com. This is Glenn Wheeler, Emson Okamah.